1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan LeBell at Saint Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kristen Looney to discuss her new book, Mobilizing for Development: The Modernization of Rural East Asia, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. The book interrogates how countries achieve rural development and offers a new way of thinking about East Asia's political economy, one that challenges the developmental state paradigm. Based on archival research and field work in Asia, the book provides a comparative historical analysis by comparing China's development experience with Taiwan and South Korea. Dr. Looney looks to focus us on the role of the state in rural development and sensitize readers to the variation in the region. While the focus is often on institutions, Dr. Looney pushes us to see the dynamic impact of state campaigns on infrastructure, sanitation, and housing in rural areas. The analysis departs from common portrayals of the development of state as wholly technocratic and demonstrates that rural development was not just a byproduct of industrialization. As she expands and challenges the developmental state literature, Looney advances a new way of thinking about the political economy of East Asia and encourages more studies of rural development in general, a topic that she believes has been neglected in the political science research. Dr. Kristen Looney is an assistant professor of Asian Studies and Government at Georgetown University. Her areas of specialization include comparative politics and the political economy of China and East Asia, Asia, and I am delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me to be on this podcast.
2: Well, it was a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. And uh, as I think all my authors are maybe tired and the listeners are tired of hearing me say, you know, I'm not a specialist in your area, but this was a really clear book and I learned a lot from it. So I'm very excited to um, have this opportunity to talk to you about it. So let's start with how you came to this particular project. Um, Was this... Your dissertation and expansion on the dissertation, like what pulled you to the study of rural development um, uh, in East Asia?
1: Um, It did start as a dissertation, but before I even started graduate school, um, I became deeply interested in... Rural issues in Asia. Um, when I was uh, a, a recent graduate, um, I did a year long study at Beijing University and I was studying rural to urban migration and uh, rural urban differences in China. And at the time there was a newly published book that was getting lots of public attention in China. Um, it was really an expose written by a local government official about a countryside that was in crisis from his perspective. And I came across this book um, at an unusual event. I had an opportunity to meet the author. um, And then it ended up being one of the very, actually the first book that I ever read cover to cover in Chinese. And so I became really interested in rural China um, as a result of that experience. And I also traveled around the Chinese countryside, meeting um, the families and extended families of uh, some of the migrant workers I had befriended in Beijing. Um, And then when I started graduate school, there was a sea change in China's rural policy. Um, Like the same year that I started my PhD program, the Chinese government announced that it was going to abolish all rural taxes in China. Um, And I think it was precisely to address some of the crises and issues that I had um, encountered and learned about just a few years before. And so I knew I wanted to study this policy change, but because it was happening as I was studying it, I also needed to situate it into some kind of larger context. Um, And so I started asking questions about what's going on in China, how does it compare to China's own historical experience, and then also how does it compare to the experience of other countries in the region? Um, And so that's kind of the path that led me uh, down this
2: field of inquiry. Um, I love that it was the first book that you finished in Chinese. I think that everyone who's worked in another language remembers that one book that they were actually able to finish. So, you know, in thinking about rural development, there's so much at stake. So, you, you know, you open the book by reminding everyone that global poverty continues to be a predominantly rural phenomena. So there's just so much going on. If 78%, as you say, of the world's poor live in rural areas that are dependent on fishing and agriculture, then what matters, what happens in rural development matters for poverty reduction um, across the globe, as well as food security and economic growth. But you really start us off by saying this is understudied. Um, and I guess I want to start off by having you share with readers why. what Why is there a bias towards thinking about the urban if poverty is located in rural areas?
1: Um, I think that within development studies, there is more attention to industrialization and urbanization because in some ways those are The more interesting and flashier stories of recent decades, um, fast-paced urbanization and the growth of slums and urban poverty um, is something that has garnered a lot of attention and it makes sense that it would. Um, And then specifically with regards to East Asia, the story of that region's urban and industrial transformation was so dramatic. Um, South Korea industrialized in a matter of two decades really, the 1960s and the 1970s, yeah. which was a historical first for any country. Um, and because of that, scholarly attention on East Asia also really heavily focused on the story of industrialization and related to that urbanization. Um, and when we think of Asia, we think of these urban megacities like Seoul and Tokyo and Taipei and Shanghai and Beijing and not the smaller areas. Um, China also proclaimed in 2011 that it was predominantly urban, that the majority of its population finally lived in urban areas. So I think for all those reasons, um, people interested in development have been mostly interested in that story. Um, And I do think there are some other disciplines, um, not political science, where there still is adequate attention being paid to the countryside um and and rural inequity rural the challenges of rural underdevelopment um, i'm thinking of the sociology of development field or you know uh, agrarian studies but i think within political science there has not been so much attention to this issue maybe since the 1970s which was like the heyday of peasant politics within political science um and since that period, uh, there just hasn't been so much attention to it, um, which I think is a shame for all the reasons that you just mentioned. Um, the fact that poverty is still predominantly a rural phenomenon and rural development, as separate from thinking about it separately from industrial development and urbanization, it, it, it's important in and of itself for providing jobs to people, for providing food security. Um, and for um, just I, just welfare in general. You
2: no, know, it's funny. As I was reading your book, and, uh, and I think about the 1970s, that's 50 years ago. So as you say, there was a time when political science was focused here, but that's now a long time ago, even if some of those foundational works remain. And, and one of the, the sort of background uh, conversations I was having with myself as I was reading your book is... How it is in political science, we do go through these trends in which people are fascinated with something and they think that is the thing. And so interestingly, this move away from, from being fascinated with the peasantry or being fascinated with the, 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 the romance, I, I should say, like of it, and put all of that in scare quotes, not. Um, so, so I think it's interesting your book in, in terms of the story that it's also telling about the field. And, and where the field has been and where you think it should go. Um, which brings me to the next question. I mean, the question that is driving this entire book is, you know, how and why East Asia achieved rural development in the way that you're describing, which is, is exceptional. And you offer a theory as to why there's variation among East Asian countries. And I want to get at your answer, but also at how your answer should be understood in the context of the other work that has focused on development. And to be honest, I'm not really sure which one we should do first. So I'm going to let you decide whether we should start with your argument and talk about what it's different, or if you prefer, talk about what's been argued and then how you moved away from that to, to the approach that you took.
1: Um, Yeah, I can start with the argument. So uh, you're correct that the book addresses two big questions. The first question is about East Asia's relative success as a a region. Um, And I do see the countries that I'm comparing as having followed similar trajectories and implemented similar policies. But then the second question is, within this successful region, why do we see different levels of success? Um, Different levels both across cases and within cases when you look at different dimensions of rural development. And I take a multidimensional approach to understanding rural development. I define it as improvements in agricultural production, uh, rural living standards, and the village environment. And actually the book focuses mostly on this third thing, on the village environment, on improvement in rural infrastructure, um, sanitation, and housing. Um, And then the argument that I have developed I think both builds upon previous research and expands and challenges it. So the way that it builds upon previous research is by acknowledging that certain institutions that are probably unique to East Asia played a really important role in spurring rural rural development um, in the post-war period for Japan, Taiwan and South Korea. And then in the post Mao Zedong period for China and the institutions that I focus on in the book are local governments and farmers organizations. But I also talk about other theories. Um, For example, uh, the legacy, the positive legacy. um, And this is, this is a debatable thing that I'm about to say, but some people say that Japanese colonialism left a positive legacy in um, its colonies for post-war development. Um, and others say that the Maoist period actually left a positive legacy for the Deng era to follow. Um, so I look at this, these arguments about initial conditions um, and the legacies of these prior periods Also, arguments about land reform. I focus on that a lot and acknowledge that land reform was important in the region, but also say that it was more important for economic and, uh, sorry, political and social reasons and not so much economic reasons. That land reform had a very short term, uh, temporary effect on rural development. Um, And then the other kind of previous explanation that I look at is just this idea that. Developmental states uh, staffed their bureaucracies, including their agricultural bureaucracies, with skilled, professionalized technocrats who made really smart economic decisions about how to develop the rural economy. So initial conditions, land reform and developmental states are kind of like the three main um, previous uh, pieces of literature or areas um, that scholars have or theories that scholars have used to study rural development. And then I guess a fourth one actually is this idea that rural development occurred as a byproduct of industrialization, that it was rapid industrialization that actually did more for the countryside than anything else. Um, Not so much land reform or agricultural policies, but the fact that people's extended family networks were making a lot of money in the cities or doing factory jobs and migrant remittances really boosted rural incomes and things like that. So the argument challenges all of those things, because it says all of those things make sense, but they don't provide a full explanation. And they don't provide a full explanation for two reasons. The first reason is that urban bias, which is a problem in all developing countries, was also a problem in East Asia. And those previous works don't really acknowledge the damaging effects of policies that Privilege the urban industrial sector at the expense of the rural sector. And I'm thinking about trade policies, pricing policies, investment policies, anything that privileged the distribution of state resources so that it would benefit, um, and private resources, so that it would benefit um, the urban industrial sector and not the vast countryside. Um, So that's the first problem with previous explanations. And then the second problem with previous work in my perspective, is that it really ignores what happened to the countryside after land reform and especially what happened um, when at the moment when these countries move toward agricultural adjustment. So agricultural adjustment refers to the declining size and performance of the rural sector and economy, right? As the industrial sector goes, the rural s- grows, the rural sector contracts and it becomes less competitive over time. So agricultural adjustment is both both refers to a problem and also a policy solution to that problem. So the policy solution to the agricultural adjustment problem is not actually what you might suspect. So what you might suspect is, OK, well, they started subsidizing agriculture. They gave people you know subsidies for farm machinery, for production inputs um, and other things. Right. This, this is very common in the developed world um, in the United States and. In Europe, there are high levels of agricultural production and subsidies. And that did occur, but that is just a far cry from what actually happened and made a huge impact on rural development in these countries Um, in 1970s, Taiwan and Korea, and then in the 2000s in China. And instead, what I argue is that it was through these top-down, sweeping mobilization campaigns that we saw massive improvements in rural infrastructure So this was not really a story of, you know, technocratic planning of subsidies and distribution of that type of household income boost. Um, But it really was about the mobilization of state and village resources, um, including collective labor, in some cases compulsory labor, um, to implement these collective infrastructure projects. Um, And there was a heavy dose of propaganda that went along with these things, too. So many of them look a lot like China's infamous Great Leap Forward, um, which was a terrible tragedy. But these campaigns that I examined did not actually result in tragedy. They were not universally successful, but they weren't these tragic doomed to fail type initiatives that we normally think of when we think of the word campaign or state campaign. So, and, and, and let yeah. me
2: interrupt you for just a second because the word "campaign" is really important to this book, and it doesn't really mean what uh, it—it's it, complicated. So, I actually let me let me ask you to back up a little bit more on the word campaigns because that's how you see this transformation in the countryside happening. So, and you use this. Uh, paraphrase of Weber where you say campaigns are manifestations of charismatic authority and institutions are rooted in bureaucratic or legal authority and i actually think that sentence helps clarify what you're trying to do so so what 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 do these campaigns look like just flesh it out just a little bit more yeah
1: um okay so i think if if you know this was mao era china it would be less of a challenge explaining what campaigns are because there are so many examples from the Mao era. Um, Land reform itself was an example carried out by the Maoist regime, also the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, and then literally hundreds more that occurred during that period. Um, And if you look at the kind of Maoist, early scholarship on Maoist campaigns, um, they define them as state mobilized, top-down efforts to produce dramatic change and to hasten the arrival of socialist and communist utopia. Um, They are strongly ideological. Um, They involve not only bureaucratic mobilization, but also popular mobilization. And this type of mobilized participation, of course, is very repugnant to people who live in free democratic societies because it's viewed as, um, you know, characteristic of totalitarian regimes as very illiberal. There's a coercive aspect to that type of participation. Um, And so there's a lot of uh, negative connotations associated with Mao era campaigns. Um, And then there's... You know, there's this debate about whether that style of politics has continued um, in the post-Mao era in China. And I think for a while, people kind of earlier generations of scholars believed that China was conforming to the developmental state model. Um, It was promoting technocrats within the party rather than ideologues. Um, so there was an elevation of what we call experts over reds within the, the party state apparatus in the reform era. But then there are a few scholars who recognize that campaigns actually seem to continue in the reform era. And uh, one person who was really influential um, on my work is Tyrene White. Um, I've never met her. Hello, Tyrene, if you're listening to this. Um, she wrote a, a wonderful book called China's Longest Campaign, and It's about birth planning um, or the one-child policy uh, during the Mao and reform eras. And she argues that the implementation of the one-child policy under Deng Xiaoping was a campaign. Um, Even though Deng Xiaoping repudiated campaigns and said, we're no longer going to have mass campaigns. We're just going to focus on economic development. In reality, in practice, uh, the one-child policy was implemented as a campaign. Um, And then there are others such as Elizabeth Perry, who was actually my dissertation advisor at Harvard, who has argued that campaign politics, again, has sustained this transition from the Mao to the post Mao era, but it's more pragmatic in nature. Um, It's a little bit less ideological. Participation, for example, is encouraged, but it's not required. Um, The target of campaigns is mostly the bureaucracy rather than the population at large. So there is this modified form of campaign politics um, that we see in post Mao China, and I think the campaign that I focus on in my book, The New Socialist Countryside, is really interesting because not only is it a campaign and everything but name, um, like it has all the indicators of a campaign. <laughs> there are high you know very large, sweeping, ambitious goals, um, concrete, hard deadlines that people have to meet. Um, In my fieldwork sites, it wasn't just the agricultural bureaucracy, but literally the entire bureaucracy, the police, the cafeteria workers at like the government um, facility, uh, the government headquarters, they were all mobilized to participate in the campaign, they had to adopt villages for which they were responsible in overseeing their transformation. So extensive bureaucratic mobilization, intensive propaganda, and if not widespread popular participation, at least the activation of village level um, enthusiasts for the campaign or activists for the campaign who would help and aid the state in, in the implementation of it. So I thought it was interesting because the New Socialist Countryside was implemented as a campaign, but also because the New Socialist Countryside, that's the name of the campaign that I studied in China, it very much resembled other campaigns that historically occurred in other parts of East Asia. And I think China scholars, although we tend to associate campaign politics with being a hangover from the Mao era, something that is wrapped up closely in the tradition of um, Chinese communism and the communist revolution in that history. um, The book argues that campaign politics derives not just from that, but actually from, regional influences it comes from china's study of korea and japan and taiwan and um actually campaigns have been instrumental in rural east asia's rural transformation for for really over a century now
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail
2: No, and I, I, and I love the connection between the three examples um, in the book, which we'll get to just in a little bit. L- let me ask you just uh, some quick methods questions. The book primarily depends on archival documentary sources. You did fieldwork in Taiwan, South Korea, and China. It, tell us a little bit about how you collected the data, the challenges of working in both Chinese and Korean, and maybe a little bit about, about your interviews as well.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm happy to do that. So I benefited from being affiliated with some great host institutions um, in Taiwan. I was at Academia Sinica and they have a huge collection of archival material about farmers associations in Taiwan and the Joint Commission on Rural Reconstruction. I was also able to access a lot of um, that's a, it's a U.S. diplomat, U.S. sponsored diplomatic mission to Taiwan. Um, that was jointly staffed by Taiwanese and Americans, and a lot of their materials are actually available at the U.S. Library of Congress, too. Um, That part of the research was pretty straightforward because actually a lot of Taiwanese sociologists did much of the heavy lifting um, before I started studying the subject um, and compiled a lot of this material together, so it was very easy to kind of track down um, and, and go through. Um, in Korea, the challenge for me was the language. Um, I started learning Korean when I was in graduate school, and I did not have that much time to do an immersion program in the country. Um, and I also knew when I started learning Korean that it was probably never going to be as good as my Chinese because I had been studying Chinese for a very long time um compared to you know when did you start studying Chinese um I started in I started as a first year in college um during my undergraduate so when I was 18 I started studying it um and that was 1997 and then I went to China in 99 that was my first trip abroad actually I'd never been outside of the United States um and then during my twenties, I probably spent about five years in China um, okay. in various capacities. So I had a lot of on-the-ground experience and formal language training. Um, when I was in, in comparison, I took like two years of graduate or under undergraduate level or you know in, um, beginner and intermediate Korean when I was in graduate school. And then I did like a summer program um, in Korea. So it just was not enough, um, but it was sufficient. Um, to help me navigate the research environment in South Korea and to connect with um, Korean scholars who had also studied uh, rural policies um, during the 50s through the 70s, which is the time period that I focus on in South Korea. And I also was able to, um, you know, go through the resources that were available, not just at libraries that I visited in Seoul, but also at the, the Seomal Undong archives um, in Korea. Uh, That's the new village movement archives. Um, And actually a lot of material on this period was published in English um, because from the very beginning of this policy in the 1970s, um, South Korea tried to market itself as a development model for other countries. Um, And so it published a lot of
2: its uh, materials
1: (laughs) about the campaign in English. Now, granted, a lot of it was propagandistic because it was about exporting a development model. And it was also produced by an authoritarian regime or scholars working under an authoritarian regime. Um, But I think that information, those documents were still very useful for understanding the scope and the intensity of the campaign and the real impact that it had on the way villages looked. Um, Subsequent studies of the new village movement have been more critical. um, And I was able to access some of those viewpoints with the helpful assistance of a a research assistant um, that I hired at Georgetown, Sung Min Cho. He's... Uh, a PhD student now, a colleague that I'm very proud of. And um, finally, in China. So in China, I was affiliated with um, the the Rural Development Research Center at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, um, CAS, which is a quasi-governmental research institute and think tank in China. Um, And I remember (laughs) like... Within a few weeks after arriving there, uh, they told me I was not allowed to use any of their research materials. <laughs> so uh, they had a new policy being implemented where foreign researchers were not allowed to use the research materials at the Institute. And I thought, okay, great. Well, why did you invite me to be a visiting scholar? So I had to find ways around it. Wow. Um one resource that I found was the National Library in Beijing, uh, which has an incredible collection of materials on the subject um, that I was studying, and open, open stacks, open source. So that was great. And then I realized that I needed to get out of Beijing and go to the countryside as quickly as possible. Um, and so through my connections at CAS, I was introduced to people in rural Jiangxi province. So Jiangxi is in South Central China. Um, and that's where I spent most of my field work. Um, I was there for about three months in 2010. And then I did a follow up trip in 2013 for another month. Um, and so I spent probably four months altogether of doing this really intensive field work in Jiangxi. And I was hosted by the Rural Work Department of. Ganjou city government. So Ganjo is this city in, in Jiangxi province where I spent a lot of time. Um, I mean, I have lots of stories about field work, but I'll just say that I I learned everything through trial and error, and being there for a long period helped. Um, and returning multiple times to villages also helped. And the way that I got around language barriers, because even though I speak Mandarin, I don't speak the local dialect there, um was to wherever I went, um, find a returned migrant worker or a college student who was home on vacation or somebody with a level of education or exposure to the outside world that they would be able to speak in, in Mandarin. And, and those people, there are many of them. They were very helpful in facilitating interviews.
2: Oh, that's great. That's a good. We have a lot of graduate students listening to the the program and people writing first books, so that's helpful. Um, the book covers a lot of ground, and we won't cover it all. But I, I do want to give everybody uh, an understanding of these three cases. So, the, the the meat of the of the book are these three chapters on Taiwan, South Korea, and China. And the the chapter on Taiwan is looking at the rapid transition from a poor agricultural society to this wealthier, industrialized nation. Again, it's incredibly complex, but can you give us a brief overview of of how it is that the government's rural policies contributed to Taiwan's success and your sort of basic takeaways from the exploration? And this is between 1950, this is the 50s to the 70s. So this
1: Mm -hmm. is one of the
2: historical uh, chapters.
1: Right. Yeah, it covers three decades. Yeah, that's right. Um, Okay, so main takeaways of the Taiwan chapter. I think of all the cases I studied- Taiwan probably conforms most closely to the expectations of the developmental state model. Um, It had a very successful industrial policy. It also had an agricultural policy that was designed by experts, um, people with degrees in agricultural economics um, and people who are trained at land reform institutes, at um, rural sociology departments, et cetera, Um, And so, there was a lot of expertise that went into designing rural policy in Taiwan. Um, One thing that that chapter shows is that despite conforming closely to the expectations of the developmental state model in Taiwan, the government also used campaigns to promote development. (laughs) So, there was this big campaign um, in the 1970s called the Community Development Campaign, uh, or I should say the Rural Community Development Campaign. And from one perspective, it was influenced by international notions of community-based, participatory development, um, which were popular at the time. Um, But I think in reality, it shared a lot more in common with Maoist campaigns and also campaigns that the Nationalist Party, the KMT, uh, which had monopoly control over Taiwan for many decades, um, uh, that, Prior campaigns of the KMT that they had conducted in mainland China. Um, I also think the KMT was kind of inspired by mobilization tactics that it studied and learned from the communists. Um, And I argue that that campaign was really successful because of the political institutional context in which it was implemented. So, There were high levels, there were clear developmental goals. It was not about extracting resources from the countryside. It was really about redirecting the country's resources to the countryside. So there were clear developmental goals. There were also really high levels of central control. So there were, um, you know, by every account, Taiwan had uh, strong mechanisms for central bureaucratic oversight Um, through inspections, um, through hierarchical organization of authority relations. Um, And so there was this kind of checks from above on local officials implementing the campaign. And then there were also checks from below on local officials implementing the campaign. There were high levels of rural participation. So Taiwan implemented this campaign quite successfully. Um, That said... I really try in the chapter to also acknowledge that institutions in Taiwan were extremely important for rural development. Um, And I focus largely on the farmers associations and the legacy that they left during that period. So Taiwan has some of the strongest farmers organizations in the entire world. Um, And they were really, I think, more important than land reform in making sure that Resources that farmers needed got to all farmers, not just a small group of wealthy, influential farmers, not just the leaders of local factions and villages, but literally to all farmers. Um, And I say that they were very successful because they were encompassing organizations that were controlled by farmers who were elected to positions of power. So they were these organizations that function quite democratically within an otherwise authoritarian regime. And so they were important um, both leading up to the community development campaign in facilitating growth in agricultural production and making sure that the benefits of agricultural modernization were distributed widely. And they were also important during the community development campaign for ensuring that farmers widely participated in it. Um, and so I think those are the main takeaways of of the Taiwan chapter.
2: No, that's great. And and I should make clear, like one of the things that's really terrific about this book is that the introduction situates us as to where you stand in the discipline and where it is you're agreeing and disagreeing. And that is as a reader, that's exceptionally helpful, right? <laughs> but mm-hmm. um but as you go through your cases, you are never afraid to say, "In fact, this is true," even mm-hmm. though it contributes to the, the other literature. That 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 part of the book is just terrific. Mm-hmm. So, thank you. After the Taiwan, you're welcome. I don't. I never say anything nice unless I really believe it. So there it is. <laughs> um, I'm from Queens. That's so like that's what we do. So it, after <laughs> Taiwan, you move to South Korea. And their rural development is happening around the same time. Their growth is, as you said at the opening, it's it's exceptional, like the speed, everything about it. And you point to how some of the factors that contributed to rural development in Taiwan are present, but there are really important differences, particularly the order of industrial and agricultural development. Mm-hmm. and the impact that government policy had on the countryside. So can you also give us the the quick yeah. and dirty version of the of what is a you know a spectacularly detailed and beautiful chapter. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, sure. So I think South Korea differs from Taiwan in many respects. Um, I think the developmental state literature tends to group these things together as very similar, if not analogous, cases. Um, And they do share so much in common. Like, I understand why there is a tendency to group them together in the literature. Um, And they were both spectacular in terms of achieving very fast-paced industrialization. Um, But actually, if you look at their rural sector performance, Korea fared very poorly before the 1970s. So Taiwan did very, very well in the 1950s and 1960s at both rehabilitating the agricultural sector and making it grow even faster than it did before the World War II. Um, In fact, agriculture contributed um, more than anything to exports and foreign currency reserves in Taiwan. It was a major component of the economy, and it helped jumpstart industrial growth. In Korea, that didn't happen. Like, really, the only thing that agriculture contributed to industrialization was surplus labor. So a lot of um, farmers moving from the countryside to the cities to engage in low-paid factory work. Um, and one reason, I mean, there are many reasons for that, About for reasons why Korea's agricultural sector didn't do so well in the 50s and 60s. Um, one of them is that Uh, they experienced a more negative um, legacy with Japanese colonialism. Um, Japan did not develop Korea's countryside in the same way it did Taiwan's. It also extracted resources in a way that pushed people towards starvation um, in in the 1930s, um, especially. Um, And because of that, when Syngman Rhee came to power. um, And during his rule in the 1950s, there was not a lot of support for initiatives or proposals to rebuild Korea's rural institutions, because they were associated with exploitive Japanese colonialism. that, Or they were suspected of being secretly controlled by communists with ties to North Korea. So rather than rebuild those institutions, which is what happened in Taiwan, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's regime rebuilt Taiwan's pre-war rural institutions and also made them better. Um, But rather than doing that, um, South Korea really just let them languish, um, and agriculture suffered as a result. Um, It was also very slow, uh, comparatively, to implement land reform. Uh, Proposals were made in the mid-40s, but then dragged on and were not implemented until really the middle of the Korean War. Um, And even after land reform was implemented, landlords still had a kind of lingering influence over the countryside, um, which meant that tenancy did not completely disappear in South Korea. Um, And in fact, it kind of returned in the 1960s and the 1970s as rural conditions worsened. Urban bias was also a bigger problem in South Korea than it was in Taiwan, um, because all industry was really concentrated in one or a few cities. Um, And so it didn't provide the way that urbanization happened, meant that people really had to migrate long distances in order to get um, job opportunities outside of the farming sector. Whereas in Taiwan, that wasn't the case, like factories were developing throughout the country. And so people could farm part-time and also work in factories part-time. So in South Korea, that wasn't the case. Um, So there really was not a positive kind of trickle-down effect of industrialization on the countryside. Park Chung-hee, when he came to power in the 1960s, decided to rehabilitate uh, South Korea's rural institutions. And he did that. He created the National Agricultural Cooperative Federation. But it was not the same kind of democratic organization that you found in Taiwan. I mean, it looked on paper to be very similar, um, but in reality, it enjoyed far less autonomy from the state um, and as a result, far less buy-in from the rural population. People really equated that organization with the government itself, whereas in Taiwan, I think farmers really viewed the Farmers' Associations as their own organizations that they were invested in. So there were these, I think, really qualitative differences in the experiences of these two countries under Japanese colonialism, also um, differences in the way that in the post-war period, uh, rural policy reforms were implemented. And then as a result, South Korea's agricultural performance just wasn't very strong. Um, That is until the 1970s came along. So a big change happened when Park Jong-hee um, lost a lot of votes in the 1967 and 1971 presidential elections. Um, these were semi-competitive elections. Everybody knew that he was going to win, but there were still opposition candidates who won, and those opposition candidates captured a lot of the rural vote, which set, sent off or set off alarm bells um, in Park Chung Hee's circles. Um, He was afraid of losing the countryside um, because that was his traditional stronghold. He really portrayed himself as a son of the soil, you know, a a child of a a big farm family. Um, He really emphasized his rural background a lot. Um, And the other thing that changed is that the United States announced that it was going to um, implement reforms to its Food for Peace program, which was this big Uh, food export program, um, whereby the United States exported agricultural surpluses to East Asia and many other other developing countries. Um, And instead of offering it for purchase in the local currency or virtually for free, the U.S. said they were going to now um, be making it payable and and, um, they were going to now require dollar repayable loans, which would have cut into South Korea's foreign currency reserve. Then the U.S. announced that it was going to cut this kind of aid program altogether, So all of a sudden Park Chung-hee was faced with a political crisis and a potential food security crisis, right? What was he going to do without really cheap U.S. food imports, Uh, which is another reason why Korea's agricultural economy had not performed very well, because there was all this cheap food that artificially kept agricultural prices down for rural producers. And so his solution was this massive campaign campaign. Which is called the new. It's called Seemal Undong in Korean. Um, It translates as new village movement or new community movement, and it affected the countryside and really the whole country for the better part of the 1970s, um, almost the entire decade. Um, And there were different components to the campaign. I argue that it resulted in mixed outcomes. On the positive side, it led to very tangible material improvements in the rural built environment, in the the infrastructure of villages and housing. And and as a result, electrification, for example, as a result, people's livelihoods dramatically improved. On the negative side, there was a really top-down effort to promote this high yield variety of rice um, and to essentially orchestrate a green revolution in Korea. And it resulted in utter failure. Um, there was, there were bumper crops at first and really high incomes and people were really excited about it in the mid 1970s, but then it quickly became apparent that people didn't like to eat this type of rice. (laughs) It was unpopular with consumers, which was a big deal because farmers in Korea actually ate, you know, they, they ate from the rice that they produced and they didn't like it. Right. Right. And then also, um... In the late 1970s, there were some really severe winter storms and some uh, outbreaks, uh, crop disease outbreaks that occurred that devastated the crop. And this really tarnished the reputation of Korea's farmers organization, the National Agricultural Fe- uh, Cooperative Federation, Um And so I argue in the book that kind of the main difference between Korea's Seymour movement and Taiwan's new community um, or community development campaign is the quality of rural participation. In both cases, these were top-down campaigns for development. It was not about extracting resources from the countryside, which is what the Great Leap Forward in China was about. It was really about promoting development in the countryside and making people's lives better. And there was top-down control in both cases, but the quality of participation in South Korea was much less than it was in Taiwan. And as a result, the the cooperative federation, the farmers organizations in South Korea could really steamroll this production campaign that was unpopular and resulted in financial ruin for a lot of people. Um, So that's just an example of how campaigns can produce a really mixed range of outcomes, they can produce really positive results and really negative results at the same time. One of the things I say in the book is that it's important to recognize campaigns played a central role in the region, but also that they're not exactly something that I would recommend other countries try to emulate because they're this very risky um, development strategy. They can easily spiral out of control.
2: Now the book does not come off as if you're recommending it, but explaining mm-hmm. how it happened. Um, so the last substantive chapter is China, uh, which covers from the 1980s to the 2000s, and it's interrogating their rural development. Um, it's and it's a big chapter, and there's a lot to it. But briefly, like, how does the study of the two historical cases clarify what happened in China? Uh, And and to what extent does it show China to be an an outlier or Mm -hmm. uh, sort of uh, following some of the trends that you saw in the other two historical cases?
1: So China is rarely compared from a cross-national perspective, I think, because as many people know, the country is just it just seems so exceptional. Um, It's different in terms of size, diversity, economic system, political regime, et cetera. But I still think it's really interesting to compare China to these other cases. And the reason I focus on the 80s through the 2000s and compared that to the previous decades in Taiwan and South Korea, so I'm looking at, I'm doing an asynchronous comparison. The reason for that is because I think that China during the reform era was a lot or is a lot more comparable to Taiwan and South Korea during the 50s through the 70s than was the Maoist period. So the Maoist period was just different on so many levels. I mean, after land reform, that was quickly followed up by collectivization. There were rural collective institutions, and and this made it very different than other countries in the region. And then also um, the performance of the rural sector under Mao was stagnant. Um, There were some achievements, but mostly those achievements were wiped out by uh, rapid population growth. So I don't really if if the question of the book is to answer what explains East Asia's success, right? Like I wanted to choose the cases that showcase the the periods that showcase success across these cases um, and also the periods that were most comparable. Um, And I don't want to I, I describe China as the least successful case, but phrasing it that way is intentional. It still was successful, right? Like there are still major achievements that we need to acknowledge that have happened in rural China since the 1980s. In the 1980s, following decollectivization, which in many ways was like China's second land reform and very similar to the collectiv- the, the land reforms that occurred in Taiwan and South Korea, um, there was a massive reduction in poverty. Um, 135 million people in one fell swoop were lifted out of extreme poverty, which is just extraordinary. Um, but like these other countries, I think after that initial reform, the government under Deng Xiaoping and then after him under Jiang Zemin really neglected the countryside and stuck with this course of urban bias and prioritizing the urban industrial sector, which is exactly what happened in Taiwan and South Korea as well. Um, And so decollectivization was really positive. There was this like bright spot for the Chinese countryside in the early to mid-1980s. And then... um, China went through a period of rural decline where the quality of public goods and services declined in the late eighties and in the nineties. Um, and really by the late 1990s, there was a crisis um, in the countryside. There was widespread rural unrest that's been documented by the Chinese government and by many Chinese scholars in various forums. Um, and, In the 2000s, it's fascinating. When the government was devising its plan for solving the rural problem, um, it actually sent a delegation of really high-level officials to South Korea to study the New Village Movement in the 1970s. And this is actually part of a long tradition dating back to the very early reform period, like the the late 1970s, 1978, 1979. It's part of a long tradition of China studying East Asia. Um, and looking to its neighbors to try and figure out, okay, how do we develop the economy quickly while also maintaining political control? Um, and even though, um, East Asia later democratized and Japan during that period was, um, already, a a democracy, um, I think this tradition of authoritarianism in East Asia um, combined with rapid economic growth made it a natural um, object or target of study for the Chinese government. So that continued again in the 2000s and Hu Jintao's government took a keen interest in South Korea and at the central level decided that the new socialist countryside, this big policy initiative, was going to be modeled after that. And I think within Chinese policy documents and also among scholars who study rural China, there's this very self-conscious identification with the larger East Asian model um, that China should be learning from East Asia because they're so, they share so much in common with these other countries. They face the same problem of a really strong state and a densely populated, underdeveloped countryside with scarce resources. Um, And they also acknowledge that campaigns are part of that model. Campaigns are transformational, not just in South Korea, but also in Japan. Um, Japan undertook its own campaigns um, at the turn of the 20th century, the local improvement movement, and then later the rural revitalization campaign. The book goes into those a little bit. Um, So I think that's kind of what makes it interesting. Those are some of the reasons why I compare China with these other cases. And... I think in terms of takeaways, um, I argue that, again, the New Socialist Countryside was a, a campaign that produced mixed outcomes, similar to the New Village Movement in South Korea. It had a really positive effect on the village environment. But I also argue that local officials' attention to rural infrastructure was kind of taken to extremes. And the campaign evolved from... Moderate, like focusing on moderate interventions in the countryside, repaving roads and rebuilding irrigation infrastructure, for example, to um, a top-down housing campaign to demolish and completely reconstruct villages um, in the image of an urban ideal. Um, And that is something I observed during fieldwork and that has only intensified since the publication of this book. Um, If you look at like Xi Jinping's anti-poverty campaign, which was concluded um, at the end of December, poverty has now officially been eliminated in China, or I should say extreme poverty has. The solution has been moving people into urban style houses and really changing the environment in which they live. And my book problematizes that. It explains how that occurred. It says it occurred because there were inadequate controls. There was inadequate central oversight of local officials and an adequate bottom-up oversight of local officials. And one reason for that in, uh, inadequate bottom-up oversight is that Chinese farmers are not well-organized, um, farmers and villagers. They're not well-organized, especially if you look at it in comparative perspective. Farmers' organizations are relatively new in China. Probably because um, the collective era, there's some trauma left over from the collective era and there's some real suspicion, not just about um, the state, but also agribusinesses and and kind of capitalists in the countryside controlling those organizations. So there's not a lot of buy-in to Chinese farmers organizations. And then on top of that, government officials are not very interested in creating village level organizations um, that would participate in policy. Um, So I make this argument that um, the Chinese government's capacity and willpower to organize rural society is weak, and rural society's own capacity and willpower to organize itself is weak. And as a result, you do have these campaigns that can lead to positive changes, but can also be carried to extremes. So my main insight about the new socialist countryside, and I think about campaigns in general in China, is that although... Reform-era campaigns are not as violent and destructive as their Maoist predecessors. They also carry their own dangers because they essentially leave the masses out. There is not a real popular participation element to campaigns in China anymore, which is kind of ironic because China, of all the cases that I looked at, right, has the longest, like, it probably has the most examples of popular participation in campaigns. But that's no longer the case. So um, China's campaigns are not as participatory. And as a result, I argue that the the campaign just wasn't as successful.
2: That's terrific. Uh, Let me ask you two things. And one, uh, I want to ask you about what you're doing now, what, what, what your next project looks like and uh, also your favorite brick and mortar bookstore. So I can close by encouraging people to go and buy the book there instead of online
1: not been to a bookstore in
2: forever, but I know, but they're going to start yeah. opening again. And and we all need to order from them either by mail right. or by walking in. So anyway, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. Yeah, but.
1: no, no, no. I mean, being in DC, I would just plug politics and prose, which is a great uh, local bookstore here. Um, and then in terms of what I am working on now, um, I'm still focused on the countryside. Um, But I'm more interested in questions about who governs um, and how that's changed historically over time in China. So I'm working on a paper right now about um, the party state recruiting college students, recent college graduates to go and serve as village officials. So there was this program I met, you know, in part, it was inspired by this research because when I was doing fieldwork in China. I met so many of these recent college graduates who were all of a sudden thrown into village politics and were supposed to be in charge. Um, and they seemed bewildered, um, to say the least. And I just found them to be a really interesting group, um, that also very few people have paid attention to or written about. And I think as, um, Chinese villages are redefined, um, they're being redefined because of these campaigns to literally move people into new types of housing on the urban fringe or to combine villages, et cetera. It's raising all these questions about whether or not villages are still villages um, and whether or not the traditional institutions of village governance, such as the village committee, the village party branch, um, the village teams or small groups, whether those things still matter And if they don't matter, and my suspicion is that they matter less than they used to, um, what type of leaders are replacing them? Um, Those are the types of questions that I am interested in now. Um, So my next book project is going to be about changes, historical changes in rural governance and also rural party building, how the Chinese Communist Party reproduces itself um, in the countryside Where actually still most party members reside, Um, even though China has urbanized, it's still the case that the vast majority of Chinese Communist Party members um, live in the countryside. And so I'm curious about how 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 the party state reproduces itself. It's also true that China has a lot of governance problems in the countryside. So that's an interesting phenomena to explore in light of the fact that they have such a strong party presence, um, in parts of the countryside. Why then do they also have these governance problems? So that's what I'm working on next. It is an outgrowth of, um, the first book. I'm not sure if I'm going to do another three country comparison. Um, I think that type of work will always be interesting to me and perhaps I will try it, but, um, there's a reason why it takes so long. Sure. Um,
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, it's a a big, big undertaking doing that type of cross-national
2: comparison. No, absolutely. Well, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time out today to talk to me about this really engaging and important book, Uh, A reminder, the book is uh, Kristen Looney's Mobilizing for Development, the Modernization of Rural East Asia, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. Uh, I want to call out Daniela Campos, student at St. Joseph's University, for assisting with the podcast. And thank you again, Kristen, for for your time today.
1: Thank you so much, Susan. I really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for inviting me to be on here in the first place. (music)